Amen. You may be seated. I've got a couple quick announcements I'm just going to burn through real quick. Uh, there's a potluck this Thursday for prime time at 6 p.m., so Thursday at 6 p.m., and uh, Mary Enns will be speaking at that, so that's great. Also, you may have noticed um, some posters going up around the church about a couple events. Uh, the one event is a women's event. Um, I don't know if it's totally exclusively women, but I, it seems like it's geared that way. Um, it's called Bake, Pray, Love. Bake, Pray, Love, and uh, it's out at Kettleston Camp on the, uh, I believe it's the 3rd and 4th of June. And um, so getting some things ready for Kettleston Camp. Now, we also have a men's event happening on the 3rd. So there's a women's event happening on the 3rd out at Kettleston. But back here at the church, there's a men's event happening, a men's breakfast happening on the 3rd. And we were scratching our heads to think of what we were going to call it. And since the women called their event Bake Pray Love, we thought we'd call ours Bacon Pray Love. It's funny, but we're actually calling it that. I'm just letting you know. Um, women's events are a little bit like, I, I think of it's like the genius of McDonald's. You know how they research and they think through and they do like, you know, you have test people and, they, and they, they really come up with what's the next thing that's really going to please our customers. Women's events are that kind of thought through. Men's events are a little more like Burger King. You know, it's like we see what McDonald's is doing. We try to copy it. And then we add a lot more meat. <laughs> it always seems to work out. Just put bacon on it and you're good. All right. I'm in a, been, we've been in a series called Generations. And this is the fifth message in this series. And we've got some really great ones yet to come. Uh, one's on parenting. One's on marriage. We're going to hear from guest speakers and panels of wise people, and there's all sorts of incredible things, and we're even doing a, a session on family technology, uh, technology in the home. Lots of great things are coming. Today, I have the uh, privilege of tackling the, the topic of singleness, singleness, and uh, I want to, <laughs> did I hear, oh no, over here, that's great, singleness, and you know, the interesting thing is when you say something like that, you think, oh wow, that's a nice little um, niche topic for a very few people, which is absolutely not true. It's absolutely not a niche topic for very few people. Did you know that in Canada, the majority of people of marrying age are single? It's true. I'm not making this up. 1980, 40%, well, 39 and a half, but 40% of the marrying age population were single in 1980. But now, 53% are single. So a lot of things have come in to change the game, right? Like, you could probably list a few of them. One, one of the easiest ones is the divorce rate has gone up, so some people are single because of that reason. But there's delaying marriage, right? When in, in back then, like, actually, I'd have to go a few more decades back, but it used to be really common for, you know, a woman would get married at 20, a guy would get married at, like, 22 and a half, you know, roughly. That has changed by six and a half years, so now the, um, it's 26 and a half and 29 are the averages. Uh, and that keeps on tipping up. You know, it used to be people get married so they'd have a partner to go through all these early life stages. Now they go through the early life stages and they sort of like, now that I've accomplished this, marriage is sort of the, uh, the, uh, the 
the end, the, the pinnacle of that or, or, or the achievement end of it. You know, we just put things in a different order now. So later marriage, more divorce. Uh, also, then you've got the fact um, that people are living longer, right? So people are sometimes single on the, la- on the latter end of their life, right? Maybe they were married, uh, they had a spouse, but then that, that spouse is not with them anymore. Uh, and some people are just skipping marriage. That's more common now, too, that people are skipping marriage altogether. So when we say, we're going to talk about singleness, we're going to talk about the majority. And we're not even, even saying that's the majority, we're not even including kids and teenagers in that. If we were to include that, it would be an overwhelming majority. If all, if there was an election, and all the single people voted, and all the married people voted, and they voted opposite each other, the single people would win the election. That's the reality of our Canadian culture is singleness is very common. And um, so when we talk about it, we're not talking about something that's rare. The other thing that I think we need to get our head around is that most of us, even who get married, spend an inordinate amount of time in our lives single. So let, I would do the math. Let's say you get married at what would be a, um, a young age now, 25. Okay, so that'd be less than average. Okay, so you're younger than average, you get married at 25. Let's say you stay married in an inordinately long time. How many of you have been married 50 years, over 50 years? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, we've got a few champions here in the room. That's awesome, phenomenal, but it's not a lot of you. Okay, I think I saw about six hands there, and that might have been three couples. Okay, so let's say you've stayed married for 50 years. You were 25 when you got married, and then at 75, one of the two passes away. And then you live to what might be quite achievable, 90 years. So that means you had 25 years single here, 15 years single here, 40 out of your 90 years are single years. And that's for someone who's been married a long, long time. So singleness is not only the majority, but even for those who are married a really long time, it's almost half of our lives, or it could be even more. And here's the last one. Here's the last clincher. If you aren't convinced that we should talk about singleness yet, here's the last one. Most of us who are married now will be single again. Most of us who are married now will be single again. Statistically, that's pretty obvious. Most couples don't die at the exact same time. In some romantic movies, they do that. My wife and I talked about that when we were younger. We said, oh, we couldn't imagine life without each other. This is when we were newlyweds. Can't imagine life. Well. (laughs) She's not here right now, so I'll be passing out $20 bills at the back later, please. (laughs) I did not mean to say it that way. Anyhow, we used to say, can't imagine our lives without each other. And we'd say, you know what? Whenever we do something dangerous together, like let's say we're moving a freezer up a a basement stairs, let's be on the same side so if the freezer comes back and crushes us, we'll go together. (laughs) So see, there is some romance in our relationship, just in case. But the reality is that if you're married today, you're most likely, the majority of those who are married today will be single again. Okay, so let's talk about uh, singleness, okay? Now, how is this personal for me? Um, I was, when I was 25 was the first time as a young pastor that I spoke on singleness. And I was single at that time. I got married when I was 27. 
And uh, so at 25, I had just met Marnie, and I had an inkling that this might be the one, and I thought, before I forget what it's like to be single, I better talk about it. And so I furiously wrote a sermon and preached it in the church that I was at in northern Saskatchewan. And when I preached this sermon, I talked about a lot of the hurts that singles have, a lot of the times that they get left out of things. And I had personal experience, right? I'm the, my, probably the most vivid illustration for me of my singledom and how relating to married people was my friendship with one of my buddies. We were soccer teammates. We also were late night video gamers. And I'd often go to his house into the basement. He had a great computer and we'd game together. And uh, his wife would be upstairs trying to sleep. And um, we were both young guys. And the one day he said, I need to talk to you about something. And he said, uh, my wife and I have been chatting and we really feel like maybe we shouldn't be, I shouldn't be spending as much time with you we really feel like maybe we should be spending time with other couples who are just like us. And it was sort of like, you know, it's not you, it's us, you know. <laughs> and so I joke about it. It's like, are you breaking up with me, bro? Like, what's going on? You know. But, yeah, that was actually what was happening. I was actually sort of being pushed back because I didn't bring a significant other to the equation. And I remember the pain of that uh, stung pretty deep. And uh, so uh, through those days, I collected enough information to write that first sermon. I talked about my friend. She was 30, and she loved weddings and tried to get out before they threw the bouquet because people would chant her name to go up there to stand with all the younger ones, and, and she was embarrassed. And it seemed like I, after she told me that, I watched her at weddings. I watched her. I'd be out of the corner of the eye. I'd see her at a different table, and I'd say, Oh, there she goes. She'd make her exit. And I'd go, oh, can't we do this better? Can't we be more considerate and compassionate? So that's what I wrote at 25. Then 10 years later, I preached the sermon again. Actually, here at Hillcrest, I preached it again. Because something had changed. I was married and had children. And I realized that I was starting to forget. And I thought, I better talk again. So actually, uh, Daisy Richardson, who had heard my first sermon and had the recording of it on audio cassette, audio cassette, can you believe it? She had it on audio cassette. She lent it to me. I listened to 25-year-old version of me preach passionately about his own pain, and then I preached as 35-year-old version. So the two, two Steves worked together on this message, and I delivered it again saying, listen, we have to include singles and, and have compassion for some of the real-life struggles that they have. So that was my, my second thing. Now that I'm 45, I am, really. You have to believe me. Some of you don't believe me. Now that I'm 45, there's a whole new aspect of this that has opened up for me. There's a whole new aspect of this that has become real to me. And um, I'm realizing how much the culture around us um, denigrates or, or puts down... Uh, Singleness as practiced in the church. I'm not talking about singleness as practiced in the culture, which is like hookup culture and you can, you're free to do whatever you want. And, uh, but the Christian culture is, really has a much more uh, straight path in that regard where it's, it's single and celibate. And I realized how singles are not only made fun of in the culture, but then they're not supported in the church. And that's like a double whammy. 
to have, you know, people who maybe isn't your tribe, you know, putting you down, but then to have your own church also think you need to be fixed. That is, that's too much. So I've been thinking a lot more about how, the, what the Bible says about singleness and how much in my own thinking, I don't think naturally like the Bible does. And I want to become conformed to what the Bible says as opposed to conform the Bible to what I think should be true, especially in this area of singleness. So what does the Bible say? Let's jump in with Matthew 19. This will help us introduce the topic. Matthew 19, 3 to 12. It says, Some Pharisees came to test Jesus, and they asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Boy, that's some male privilege there, eh? Uh, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That last line Jesus adds to the original teaching from Genesis. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay? Why then, these are the religious leaders who are responding, they say, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. So he's telling them more about this original plan that God put into place for for marriage. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, up until this point, this is how I picture it, Pharisees who are asking questions, Jesus who is answering questions, and disciples who are standing with Jesus just so happy to be with such a smart guy. He's a rabbi. You know, he's smart, right? So we're just standing with Jesus, and we're like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, yeah, Jesus got an answer for everything you've got. You know, you ask more questions. But at this point, the disciples jump into the conversation, and I think it's because what Jesus just said shocked them. Really, really shocked them. Jesus said, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery, and I think they, they go, whoa, Jesus. Oh, are you for real? Okay, forget the Pharisees. We have a problem with this. Your own Followers have a problem with this. This is so hard what you're saying. You're saying that marriage is supposed to be lifelong and that committed. And actually, you know what these guys were proposing? You know that divorcing your wife for any and every reason? We sort of like having that liberty and freedom to be able to do that. And you're saying no? This is hard. This is hard. What an incredibly hard path. And the words that that they say is that If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. Now that'll put Jesus back in his place, right? This extreme statement. But Jesus one-ups them. This is what he says. He says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born this way. Now a eunuch was those who um, couldn't have sexual relations and couldn't marry in that culture. So they, again, it's a bit of a strange connection, but I think this helps us to understand singleness because these would have been those who were single in that day for sure. Okay, so let's just go further. For there are eunuchs who are born this way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those, catch this line, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. 
So Jesus lines up the two paths of righteous living that you can take as a marriable adult. The one is marriage that's lifelong and committed all the way. I mean, he gives a little bit of an out with sexual immorality, but basically he says that's the path. And if you think that path is too hard, there's another path. And that is being single and celibate all the way and committed to the kingdom. And I bet the disciples are like, those are both hard. Those are both hard. Those are both difficult. But they're the two righteous paths that God sets out for his people. Now, both of these righteous paths are under massive attack in our culture. Okay, now this is not a message about marriage, but marriage and singleness can't get away from it. First, there's tons being written today about how, um, how bad being married is. In fact, let me be more specific, how bad monogamy is, right? Being faithful to one person. Lots are being written. Books are being written to women saying, finally, get out from under the patriarchy. Don't let those men dominate you anymore. Be free. And at the same time, books are being written to men. Actually, I should say articles because we don't read books. Small articles are being written to men saying, monogamy is a trap for you. You weren't even evolutionary-wise. You weren't meant to be just one, with one woman. You're meant to spread yourself far and wide with many different partners. So this lie, this attack is coming to both men and both women saying, don't do this. Don't do monogamy. Try all these other wonderful varieties and options other than this. So that's under attack. But you know what? Under even greater attack is single celibacy. Okay, celibacy is, is to be single and not to be uh, sexually engaged. To be pure, to be chaste is an old-fashioned word for it. There's a, even a greater attack on that. The thing is, in the church, when people come against being faithfully monogamous or being married, usually the church rises up and says, no, we don't care what the culture is doing. We believe that God has called us to make these kind of commitments to each other. We believe that uh, to stand up as a husband and wife at the altar and say, till death do us part is the right thing. We're okay with being on the wrong side of history if this is what it is. We don't care who's writing the history. We're going to be countercultural. But I don't think there's as strong a response from the church when it comes to supporting singles. I've been thinking about this lately. I've been thinking, you know what? Maybe what we come to church for is just to hear the other side of the argument. It's just to hear what is the countercultural response. It's just to see what would Jesus say if, if a culture is sort of taken the wrong turn? What would Jesus say that's a corrective to bring a right turn? But I don't think there's a lot being said on, on this topic. And, and I think there's a greater attack and there's a less of a defense you can see this in movies. Anybody who's, uh, anyone who's, um, trying to be careful with my words here. Anyone who's not been sexually active is often made fun of in movies, TV shows, uh, the titles of movies, 
Um, yeah, I was going to list a few, but I'm being more careful with my, my audience. But there's lots and lots of different ways in which it's, you know, who could do this? Nobody could do this. Anyone's an idiot for doing this. Who would follow this path? That's common being, commonly being said in the culture. So I'm gonna, we're going to watch a little video here together, okay? And this is uh, to help us. The, the, who's, who we're going to hear from is Sam Albury. I'm really enjoying him. more I connect and read, I've read one of his books. Um, he's a single pastor in England. By the way, in England, they have more single pastors. That's not something that's as common in North America, single pastors. And I think if we had a few more single pastors, we'd have it would change some of our thinking where we think that we need to fix single people. I think if we had single pastors more, I have a few single pastor friends and hold them in high regard, but I think if we knew more of them, we, it would help change the, the view of the church. But anyhow, he's a single pastor from England and he's gonna talk a little bit about uh, singleness from his perspective. So let's roll that video. biggest one is that we, we tend to define singleness purely in negative terms. So we think about what it isn't and what it lacks rather than what it is and what it has. Whereas in the Bible, I think Paul describes singleness in, not in terms of what it isn't, but in terms of what it is, um, what we enjoy as single people. So in the church, we can often think singleness is the, primarily the absence of marriage. But along with that, we think singleness must therefore mean the absence of any kind of intimacy or companionship or family or close friendship. And singleness is not meant to be the absence of all of those things in the New Testament. It is the absence of marriage, but it's the presence as well of other forms of intimacy, of other forms of, of close friendship and, and companionship. And moreover, Paul is, is quick to show us that actually the single person should be defined by what they have as a single person, not by what they lack. And what we have is what Paul describes as being an undivided devotion to the Lord. Uh, we are freed up in a way to, to serve the Lord with a capacity, with a focus that wouldn't be possible or appropriate if we were, were married and, and had children. Uh, Paul also speaks in terms of certain troubles in this age that we are spared by our singleness. But not having those commitments to spouse, commitments to, to children, commitments to immediate family means that actually we can be serving the Lord in a, in a wider range of ways with a, a different kind of capacity uh, to those who are married. So we shouldn't think of singleness in terms of the absence of certain things, but in terms of the presence of certain things, presence of certain joys and privileges, but also of that opportunity to serve God wholeheartedly. All right. So he references what Paul says about singleness. Okay? He references uh, the things that Paul's saying. We're going to read that together. So that's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, and we're going to start with 7 to 9. Uh, Paul says this, I wish that all of you were as I am. And he means single. He's single. Paul was single. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has, one, one has this gift, another has that. Okay, let's pause there for a second. Um, I, I remember gr growing up and hearing people talk about the gift of celibacy, sort of like as a, 
Maybe as a joke, a little bit. People would say, well, you know, I must have the gift of celibacy, you know, if a date went bad or something like that. It was just sort of like thrown around very lightly. Um, the more I've looked into it, I, I've come to see it a different way, that the gift of, of singleness or the gift of celibacy is not actually a superpower to be able to be single. Right? Paul says, one has one gift, one has the other gift. I actually don't see it that way. This is what I see. I say that whether you are married or find yourself married or single, that that is the gift. That the situation is the gift. Let me read it again, see if you can reconcile with what the scripture says. It says, I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Is there a, is there a gift of marriage? A superpowered ability to be married? No, we don't say that. So I don't think that there's actually a corresponding superpowered ability to be single. What I do think there is, is situations you find themselves in, and they are meant to be received as a gift from God. So you say, thank you, Lord, for my marriage. It's a gift. Thank you, Lord, for my singleness. It's a gift. And... God, that because you've allowed this into my life, because uh, this is my situation, I believe that you're going to give me the grace to be married to the glory of God or be single to the glory of God. I believe that you wouldn't give me this gift without giving me the empowerment to make the most of it. So he says, let me read it again. I wish that all of you were as I am. It's crazy. If I was single... And I was standing up here today and saying to you, man, I wish you guys were single. It's too bad so many of you are married. You're missing out. It's hard to think biblically sometimes. Our thoughts are often pre-programmed by our culture around us and even in our church culture, sometimes we don't have it totally like biblically accurate thoughts. So we've got to go back to the scriptures. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say. It's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, if you think of singleness as plan B, you have to reconcile with this, this sentence, right? These sentences. He says, it's good for people to remain unmarried, but some people can't control themselves, so I guess they should marry. Which sounds like plan B? <laughs> Marriage sounds like plan B in here. Isn't that crazy? Is that how you think? When you think about the future for your children, do you think, man, I hope they're single and devoted to God, but maybe if they have trouble in that area of sexual temptation, then they could go to plan B and get married. Is this challenging your thinking? It's challenging mine. It's challenging mine big time. I, until I dove into this, I didn't realize how steeped I was in the culture around me. This is helping me big time. See, whatever situation you're in is a gift. Now, some of you say, well, I don't want this gift. And you might say that single or married. Because guess what? Either of them can be a hard path. Some people will say, well, if I was only married, all my problems would go away. Well, 
you might have new problems, maybe twice as many, your own problems and someone else's. And sometimes if you're married, you say, well, if I was single, my problems would go away. No, you'd have other problems too. I say instead of that, instead of either of those options, you say, thank you for this gift, God. Thank you for, for singleness, which you're using to prune me and change me and, and develop me and grow me into your character and become like you. Or thank you for marriage. You're using to prune me and change me and develop me so I can become like you. Thank you for the gift. Thank you for the gift. And you're going to probably, because I said, you're probably going to be single in your life. This is a message for all of us. To thank God for singleness. And if you're married, I say if because that's not a guarantee for everyone. All of you will be single, but not all of you will be married, right? Or all of you have been single, but not all of you will be married. If you're married, the same thing applies. To thank God for that. Elizabeth Elliot says this about it being a gift. In her, her book is called Let Me Be a Woman. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, who was, you know, some of you know his missionary story being killed. Anyhow, long story. She says this, she says, Having now spent more than 41 years single, I have learned that it is indeed a gift, not one that I would choose, not one many women would choose, but we do not choose our gifts, remember. We are given them by a divine giver who knows the end from the beginning and wants above all else to give us the gift of himself. Above all else, God wants to give us the gift of himself. And that's exactly what these verses point to. I'm going to read a little farther into this chapter. 1 Corinthians uh, 7 and then verse 28. So you're going to go down to the end of the chapter. It says, if you do marry, you have not sinned. Oh, you're relieved, aren't you? Right? And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So it's talking about a guy and a girl. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you, I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Okay? This life, it's a breath, it's over quickly. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they do not, and those who mourn as if they did, did not, and those who are happy as if they were not, and those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of this world is not as engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. Let me just pause, maybe give something about that last passage. It's, it's saying that you look at your present reality, Right? Uh, you're happy, you're sad, you've bought something, um, you use the things of this world. He's saying, this world in its present form is passing away. In other words, your life is short, it's a breath, it'll be over, and then eternity. So how should we live? Should we live for the millimeter of this life? Or should we live for the light years and light years of eternity? Well, a logical person would say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live for the big thing. I'm going to live for the thing that is way bigger than the other thing. I'm not going to live for the tiny thing. I'm going to live for the, the main thing, right? So he's saying that all these things that you're experiencing, you're, you're mourning, you're happy, realize all this is passing. You've got possessions. You can't take it with you. 
You're all engrossed with the things of this world. You're so fixated on them. They're not to keep. They're not forever. This world in its present form is passing away, and the time is short. I would like you to be free from concern. This is logical. If we're really concerned about this tiny life so much that we forgot about eternity, he says, I I would love it if you were not so concerned about that. I would like it if you were not so concerned with that so you could focus on the main thing. He says, so I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. He's single-minded. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affair. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. And then he sums it up. He says, I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, not to say you can't get married, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the point. That we are all meant to live in undivided devotion to the Lord. Whether married or single. But singles have an advantage in this area. Paul is spelling that out. It's the advantage of focus. That's what Sam Albury was talking about. It's the advantage of focus. Of being undivided in your attention. And so, sometimes, I would say generally we're not recognizing that we're not honoring that we're not praising that in the church we're not elevating that we're not saying this is opportunity bill that you can live in undivided devotion to the lord so let me just sum up this section and then i'm going to jump into something else it says my summary is this this earthly life is short eternity is forever so undivided devotion to god makes the most sense And union with God is what we're made for, and marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is not ultimate. One of our response to the culture may be wrong, and that is when we, the culture says, puts down marriage, our response might be to elevate marriage to a place it doesn't actually deserve, and that is to make it an idol, to make it ultimate. Would you rather have your kids be married and not serving God or serving God and single? And that's sort of a, you know, you know what the right answer is, but it might be a hard answer for you. Because your heart might ache a certain way when you think of your kids not serving God, but your heart might ache another way when you think of them not being married. That tells us something about how much marriage as an idol has infiltrated our thinking and our hearts. Matthew 22, 30, I mean, this is an inconvenient and unpopular truth. It says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They'll be like the angels in heaven. So some authors have said, this is just straight up saying you're not going to be married in heaven. Um, I'll take a different tact. That I'm not totally sure. Here's why I probably take a different tact, because I'm a pastor and I run into people all the time Not all the time, but occasionally I run into people who, when they think of heaven, uh, I think they think of all the the fringe benefits of heaven and they don't think of the main benefit. For example, I had one guy who wanted to meet with me for coffee, urgently wanted to know if his dog, who had died, would be in heaven. 
And I remember saying, no, I'm not a pet lover, so I'm the wrong kind of pastor to ask. So I was like, I don't read anything in the Bible that tells you your dog's going to be in heaven, and the guy was devastated. And I don't, like, I don't have that same pet connection or whatever that pet lovers really have, and that's the first time I really experienced it in its full uh, magnitude. The guy said, then I don't want to go to heaven. And I was like, what? And so I'm realizing two things. One, people really love their pets, and I didn't know that as much as I realized at that, that moment. And then the other thing, when people think of heaven, they often think of the fringe benefits of heaven. They don't think of the main benefit of heaven, right? So they think of heaven. I go to heaven, and Rover is going to run up to meet me, and I'm going to, you know, play with Rover and scratch him, whatever. It's going to be wonderful. And, okay, I know there are going to be animals in heaven, so I've changed my tactic, actually. When I get cat lovers, it's easier, because I, the, the scriptures talk about the lion lying down with the lamb. So I say, well, there will be big cats in heaven. <laughs> and I'm sure if God created dogs here on earth, he's got something just as good in heaven, too. So I'm, not, I've, I'm more compassionate than I ever was before for pet lovers. But here's the thing. When you get to heaven, we often say things like, I can't wait to be reunited with my spouse, my child, my mother, my father. Some of you more theological ones will say, I want to sit with Moses and ask him about the Ten Commandments. You know, whatever. We all have these things that we want to do in heaven, but the reality is the headliner of heaven is God himself. And that all of, all of, all of the, the, the history of, of, of humankind is leading towards union with God himself. Mankind being united with God. The earliest part of the Bible starts with a wedding, Adam and Eve. And it ends with a wedding. All of humanity united with Christ. And God knew this before he did this. It's not like when God says, hey, our union in heaven will be sort of like marriage. He doesn't say it that way. He's not saying, oh, I noticed you guys get married, so this will help you understand it. No, he had this in mind already. He already knew this was going to happen. This union with Christ, this being together in intimacy with God was going to happen, and then he created this. And he created this as a trailer for the movie. So if you're married and you're in a relationship, you're the, little, you're the model of what's yet to come. Not a perfect model. No marriage is. But you're a model for what's to come. But if you idolize this, if you say this is ultimate, you're missing out on what is really ultimate. It's like that scene in Zoolander. Anyone watch Zoolander? Zo Dumb movie. Anyhow. Basic premise of Zoolander is that the better looking you are, the dumber you are. Anyhow, the movie goes on. This guy, he's a male model, so he's super dumb, and, but he's rich. And he, he wants to build um, a school for kids who can't think good or something. What? Kids who can't read good. And he comes in, and they've made a scale model of the school. And they say, this is the school. And he's like, you made it too small. Because he's not very smart. He thinks this is the real thing. And that's what we do with marriage. We look at marriage and we say, that's ultimate. No, it's not. 
It's just a trailer for the ultimate. And the ultimate is union with Christ. And that, in that way, singleness and marriage can both foreshadow the ultimate. Because marriage, what marriage says is, is just like we make vows and, and, and we're covenanted with each other and we're, 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 we're tied together and we're one. Someday, the ultimate reality will come and we'll be one with Christ. And singleness says, Christians who are single and celibate, they say, you know what? The value of that union with Christ is so great, so great that I can push back culture's obsession with romanticism and sex. I can push that back. I don't need that because there's a whiff of a life and then I have what's ultimate. So one speaks, one shows the model and the other shows the sufficiency of what the promise is. Being united with God. And that's what Elizabeth Elliot's saying and that's what Paul's saying and that's what Sam Albury's saying. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says it this way. It says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Sound familiar? And the two will become one flesh. And Paul says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So a man and woman get married. They are acting out in a small way the model of what God's relationship with us is going to be. Marriage here points to marriage there. And singleness here points there as well. It points to how powerful that reality is and how sufficient God is. You see, Jesus changes the game when it comes to singleness. One of the easiest ways to see that is that Jesus was single. So if you, if you see, if you see um, single people and you think, they're not fixed, they're not sorted, they're not complete, then I would say you should repent of that. Because Jesus was single, right? You're denying his humanity if you say that. Jesus was fully God and fully human. Never had romantic relationships. Didn't engage in sexual activity. Yet fully human. And how that changes how we see our own selves begins to unfold. Isaiah has some neat few passages in a row from Isaiah 53 to 56. There's all these little hints in there. Let me read a few verses. Isaiah 53.10 says this. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Talking about Christ's crucifixion and death. And, and though the Lord made his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. So Jesus, who was single and didn't marry and didn't have biological children when he was here, as God and man will see his offspring. See, he's building a spiritual family, a huge spiritual family. Okay? So, well, how does that change the game? Isaiah 54.1, see some of the things that work out of this. Isaiah 54.1 says, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, Burst into song, shout for joy, those who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than those of 
of those who has a husband, says the Lord. How can that possibly be true? How can that possibly be true? It's got to be along the same principles of what we understand about Jesus. And what we understand about Paul. And what we understand about Sam Albury and all these people. It's the same principle. What's ultimate is union with God. Union with Christ. That's what's ultimate. And because that's what's ultimate, what matters now is spiritual children. That's what matters. Now, you might have biological children that are also spiritual children. They may also be believers. That's wonderful. But what matters now is spiritual children. And so Paul, who wasn't married, but wasn't alone, you notice in all of the writings of Paul, he's traveling places with people. He has these guys, those guys. He's, he writes to Timothy, my son, Titus, my dear son in the faith. He writes to Titus, he says, hey, treat older Women like mothers. Treat older men like fathers. Treat, uh, treat uh, younger women like sisters. He didn't say, treat people in the church like distant relatives. He says, this spiritual family you belong to is supposed to be full of intimate relationships. It's supposed to be full of intimate relationships. Now, we have a trouble with that in North America because we're individualistic. We all like our own little cocoons, our own boundaries. And I struggle with it as much as anyone does. Here'd be a good question maybe to, to measure this in your life. Who has a key to your house? I'm not just talking about that person who has a key to your house just in case you lose your key. I'm talking about who else has a key to your house? Who else is allowed? <laughs> Some of you are saying, oh, i got to get that key back. <laughs> That's a good reminder. Thanks, Steve. I'm going to get rid of that key. Who has the key to your house? Who's allowed into that inner circle? You know, one of the great blessings when I was single in Nippon is that the pastor and his wife, Lauren and Kelly Tebbett, they had me over like several times a week. But Sunday night was our given night. So we did it that, and in those days we had a Sunday morning service and a Sunday evening service. So Lauren, the good preacher, would preach in the morning, and then Steve, the learning preacher, would preach to the ten people who came in the evening. <laughs> it was good for me. I was glad to have that, those opportunities to learn. And uh, then afterwards we would go next door. They lived in the little church house. They called it a manse. They lived next door, and they would invite, every Sunday night I was invited over. Every Sunday night, I got to go over. And I got to witness how the husband, Lauren and Kelly would debrief the sermon, and sometimes Kelly would be criticizing Lauren for what he said because he often said some crazy things. And it was really fun. And so I got to see how husband and wife work out their differences. That was fascinating to me. And I got to see, we watched David Letterman together. That was always fun. And uh, I got to eat their cereal and just be in their home. And, and they would, I remember the time when Lauren said, you know what, Steve, do you know how to, do you know how to, uh, tuck kids into bed? He said, no, not an no sniff. He said, you, tonight you do that with our kids. I want you to tuck each one of the kids into bed. You're part of our family. I was like, really? Cool. I remember being scared spitless going into Chad's room and going, oh man, are you scared, Chad? Yeah, I'm scared too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll get through this together. <laughs> but they, 
involved me in their lives. They brought me in. They included me. Somehow, being a part of the spiritual family of God also meant I got to be part of the physical and the relational family that, that existed there as well. Isaiah 56.5 says, To them, this is about men. We talk about women already having more children, even if they're not married, spiritual children. Then for, promises for men. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. If you're single or even married and you haven't had kids... It's about spiritual union with Christ for all of us, for all of us. Even if you're married and you haven't had kids, it's about spiritual union with Christ. It's it's about who is going to unite with Christ and be a part of this greater family, um, about this ultimate union, this this final marriage. Who's going to be a part of that? That's the big question. That's why Paul said it's so important that you be focused. And if you're single... You got that extra ability to be focused, so that's awesome. I wish everybody was like me. I wish everyone could experience what I'm experiencing. Paul had friends in like every little town he went to. He had spiritual children all over the place, writing to them, connecting with them. Come visit me. I'm in prison again. Come see me. I can't go anywhere. My take on this is that the the church, I shouldn't say the church, I can't embrace Paul's teaching that singleness is an advantage to marriage unless the gospel and God's work becomes my greatest passion. Unless I have a high view of how important this final union with Christ is, I will continue to muddle around with this culture's values. Let me leave you with one final verse. It's Psalm 90, verse 14. I sent it out in an email this morning, the pastor's hard email, but let me share it with you again. It says, Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Satisfy us with, in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. This is a great verse for marrieds. This is a great verse for singles. If you're married and you're not satisfied in God, you'll look somewhere else to get your satisfaction. Target number one will probably be the one who lives with you. You might be miserable to live with because of that. Because you're meant to receive your joy and your satisfaction from his unfailing love. Then you have something to give in relationship. It's the same if you're single. Read the verse again. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Happiness is not finding that someone. Happiness you can have now. You can have now. The groundwork for your happiness has already been laid by Christ. You can be satisfied. That doesn't mean you won't have longings. That doesn't mean that you won't think or dream or imagine about scenarios that are different. But you can be happy now and be satisfied in his love. Here's the thing. If you aren't happy single, 
you won't be happy married. And for some of you who are trying to get out of marriage, if you're not happy married, I don't think you'll be happy single either. Because you're meant to find your source of joy and happiness in Christ. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Let's practice now what we'll experience in a more perfect form in eternity. Union with Christ, connecting to Christ. Now let me just speak to singles as I close here. Just straight to singles. I'm not going to include the marrieds in this. You can eavesdrop if you want. My, my mom really challenges me sometimes when I'm going to preach. I say, well, what if I preach to this people? What do you think? She always just comes off and she says, just don't, I'm going to paraphrase what she says, but don't treat them like victims. Challenge them to be warriors for God. <laughs> so I always think of that. And whenever I'm talking to someone where I feel like, oh, they've had a hard time, you know, empathy wants you just to agree with them. And no, challenge them to be warriors for God because that's what they are. So let me speak to you as single people. Let me give you four things, admonitions. One, avoid trading material distractions, or no, sorry, marital. <laughs> I'm reading it wrong. Avoid trading marital distractions for other distractions. So you're not married? That, Paul says that's the opportunity. You can squander that opportunity with just filling your life up with things about yourself. You can. And it's, it's sad if you waste your life in doing that. There's so many diversions. Like you might just say, well, great, I can watch more Sports Center, or I, I, can, I can, you know, watch more Netflix. In fact, I can watch all the shows on Netflix, phone my married friends, and tell them how they end. <laughs> no, don't waste your life. Take 1 Corinthians 7 as, a, as an encouragement, as a blueprint. You have undivided focus. You can do you can live a life without those extra distractions. Don't just fill it up with distractions. Married people are distracted. If you've got something that God's enabled you to have, receive it as a gift. And don't waste your singleness. Number two, say yes to the spontaneous. Say yes to the spontaneous. Married people are hopelessly predictable. They're in a routine. And they're not very spontaneous. I have one uh, pastoral friend who uh, shows me this again and again. He's single. He shows up all the time, out of the blue. Hey, I'm in town. Want to go for coffee? I can't. Too bad for you. I'm going to go for coffee with someone else. I'm like, wow. I just love how spontaneous he is. He's just always showing up. Hey, want to go for coffee? Want to go for lunch? Hey, want to do this? I'm like, this is amazing. How do you have so much freedom? That means if you've got that, Say yes to the spontaneous. You will have opportunities, a single person, the married people won't have, to do things like this. A quick yes. Not a, oh, I, I'll, I, I think I can do that in eight years. <laughs> you can say yes now. You can do it now. And that's one of your greatest spiritual gifts as a single person is your yes. So use it. And say yes. You have an unbelievable freedom to say yes. So use the yes to, to do selfless, impulsive decisions, right? Sometimes I see someone, like I'll, I'll be on Facebook, I'll see someone's hurting and I'll think, oh, man, I got kids, wife, 
life uh, can't help. You can get up, go to Tim Hortons, buy them a coffee, show up on their doorstep and say, hello, I'm here to take your kids off your hand for a while. I go, I'll drive your kids to school today. Hey, I just came to sit with you. I'm here for the whole evening. How can I help? Be impulsive. Say yes to the spontaneous. Number three, practice selflessness while you're still alone. Practice selflessness while you're still alone. Some of you who are single, you hope to be married. And that's okay. But if you're single and hope to be married, practice selflessness now. Don't wait till the like, you know, intensity of now I have to learn to be selfless because otherwise we're not going to make it. That sometimes happens in marriage. Practice it now. Look out for the interests of other people. Think of a couple people or families for whom you could lay down your single life for. Practice the things that you say, if I, again, this is mainly for people who hope to be married. If you hope to be married, and I'm not saying that that's what you should hope for if you're single, but maybe you do. If you do, then practice being selfless now, being mindful of the needs of others now, especially those in the church. Contribute now. Do the kind of things that you think you will do or you would need to do in the future. And number four, do radical time-consuming things for God. Okay? We already said you're free to say yes to more spontaneous things. You're also able to say yes to things that require more of you than a married person could afford to do. So dream bigger. Dream bigger. Dream, dream more costly dreams. Start something. You know, the verse that I always think of the verse that says, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your singleness. But be an example to the believers in life, in love, in faith, in practice. I, I don't like the fact that somehow we think you got to be married to lead. It just doesn't jive with the fact that we've been following a single person for 2,000 years. So if you're single, lead. Lead well. Lead in such a way that married people go, wow, that's what it looks like to be focused. That's what it looks like to be undivided. That's what it looks like to be devoted to the Lord, to, to, to push aside all these cares and concerns of this, this earthly life and really go after union with Christ. Challenge us. Make us hungry for the life that you're leading. So dream, dream big, aim big, start something, commit hardcore, and use what God has given you. Embrace it as a gift. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much that you have put the lonely into families. That's your desire. And Lord, help us. Help us. I, I realize how much I am a product of this culture. And Lord, this study has, has really convicted me about the fact that I keep thinking in these same patterns, and yet your word has a different pattern. Thank you that it's all about union with you. Thank you that it's all about union with you. It's all about being right with you. It's all about being your follower and knowing you. Thank you. In just a few moments here, we're going to baptize two who have come into union with you. 
Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we celebrate, uh, we celebrate biological children, but Lord, you've called the church to celebrate spiritual children. I thank you for every spiritual brother and sister that you've given us in this body. And Lord, give us eyes to see how to involve others more, how to include others more, how to expand our lives in, with the lives of others. And Lord, I, I pray for each person who's single in this house today, uh, that um, you know their whole story, you know the background, you know everything. But Lord, I pray that you would give them great faith to receive this word and to rise up. I pray for those of us who are married and maybe we've been trying to fix our single friends. Forgive us, Lord. Please forgive us. I pray that we'd be able to receive this word and we'd be able to value the diversity that you put in your body. I thank you for all the single leaders who have led us in the past. I thank you for all the single leaders you're raising up to lead us in the future. Lord, I pray that we'd we'd be really great traveling companions with each one of them. And Lord, I pray for the years that are to come. You know that some of us who are married will be single in the future, Lord. I pray for those days to come. I pray you'd give us strength. I know some of them are in those days. I pray you'd give them strength to not live in the past, but to embrace the now to find joy in you in the morning and to make you their source. I ask that in your name. Amen. Well, we have an incredible, incredible joy today, and that is to have a baptism here this morning. We've got all these people up front. I bet they all have cameras. And that's because we are going to, uh, uh, we're going to see Cole and Meadow Williams baptized. And uh, I, this is special for me because their dad, Steve, I got to baptize a number of years ago. Yeah, and that was pretty exciting. So we're going to invite them to come on up. And uh, family, come on up with. And uh, friends and family, feel free. You can come up. There's space over here for friends and family to stand. And uh, we want to celebrate along with you. Let's all stand as a congregation. You just, you've been sitting, but you've got to stand. This is, the, this is sort of the, the pinnacle when somebody says, I've come to follow Jesus and uh, he's my savior, then, then you want to celebrate that. Yeah. I love it. Okay. So who's going to go first? Cole is. Thank you, Meadow, for volunteering. Volunteering. Your brother. Oh, we got videos first. Let's watch the video.